0: Uh, well, if you've been with us for a little while, uh, you know that we are nearing the end of the book of Esther. We've been in, in Esther for uh, a long time now, and uh, <clears throat> today we're going to be in uh, chapters 8 and and most of chapter 9. Uh, up to this point, uh, especially recently, we've had a number of, of real climaxes, real victories in the book, uh, Haman, who was the antagonist, the real uh, villain of the book, he was executed last week. He was, he was justly condemned for his, for his wrongs, for uh, putting out this decree that, so that all the Jews in the Persian Empire would be destroyed. He was killed, but the decree, it still exists. It still lives on. And so there is still uh, some serious things that need to be resolved. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, It's a long section of scripture, so some parts I'm going to read, some parts I'm going to put up on the screen, and by the end of it, uh, we are going to get one point of application. Just one, but it's a crucial point of application for those of us who have faith today and are seeking to grow in our faith. We're going to see it rooted in uh, this uh, text of scripture long ago and is going to come to bear on us today. So, uh, I'm going to jump right in. We're going to begin with Esther chapter 8, verse 1. And uh, just to set the context, this is right after Haman has been put to death. Here it continues. On that day, King Hashuares gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king. For Esther had told what he was to her, and the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther sent Mordecai over the house of Haman. So here we say uh, the reversals that began last week are really continuing on. Uh, Haman's wealth and property, which was a lot, was given to Esther. She, in turn, put uh, Mordecai to, to rule over it, and then Mordecai was raised up to Haman's position. The king knew him to be a man of integrity, had already saved his life, so he took off his ring, which was a symbol of authority and power, gave it to Mordecai. Now he was the second person in charge of the Persian Empire, which is all great, but the decree of death still exists for the Jews, that later on that year, there would be a day when all the Jews could be destroyed and that still needs to be dealt with. So here it is, uh, verse three, I'm just gonna read this. Um, It goes like this. Then Esther spoke again to the king, She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose, stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? That's her appeal. Then King Hash- Ashuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king, and sealed with the king's ring, cannot be revoked. So we'll pause here for a moment. Um, you see here Esther's second appeal. You probably noticed the difference. Uh, There's not a lot of delay. There's not a lot of feasts. There's a lot of uh, all that. She just comes right out and she makes a very personal, very emotional appeal. She basically says, king, if you care at all about me, if you love me at all, if you want me to be happy, then you will revoke Haman's decree. The king replies, basically says, look, I've done what I can. I mean, Haman, all, all his wealth has been given to you. He's been hanged on the gallows. But listen, the decree itself cannot be revoked. He says, um, you can write a new decree if you want. He's basically saying, if if you can find some way to try to counteract what's out there, that's fine. But according to the law of the Persians, once a royal decree went out, it was out there. It cannot be repealed or revoked. We saw that already in chapter 1. So, in a sense, they think there's not a lot of hope. But for Mordecai and Esther, they see an opening. In fact, it really seems like Mordecai, uh, I mean, he must have known the law. And so he probably already had this in mind because uh, the opening they're given is you can write a new, new decree. The king says, I'll sign whatever you want. And Mordecai right away summons the scribes and he has something already in mind. So here's the next part. Here's Esther 8, starting in verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written... According to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps, the governors, the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, remember massive, massive empire, 127 provinces, to each province in his own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. So everyone will, will know what's going on. Verse 10, And he wrote in the name of King Hashuarus, and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses That were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud. So the emphasis there is on speed. They want to make sure that this new decree gets to the very farthest reaches of the empire in time so that everyone knows. And now here is the new decree. We'll put it up so you can see the words. The king allowed the Jews, who were in every city, to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. And on one day throughout all the provinces of King Hashuarus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So you notice there, if, if, it, if you remember, that's the exact same language of the first edict. So Haman had told everyone, look, you can destroy, kill, annihilate the Jews, plunder their goods. And Mordecai writes the reverse, saying to the Jews, now in the king's name, you're allowed to destroy, kill, annihilate everyone who's attacking you and plunder their goods. So it's kind of like a, uh, just evening the, the, the playing field. Let me read the rest of the administrative details. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. So essentially what's going on here is that the new decree... uh, gives the Jews an opportunity to neutralize the threat. That's really what, what we're seeing here. They're able to defend themselves. Uh, the parameters are exactly the same. And now we're going to see um, uh, a little bit of an interlude. So if, if you can imagine, that happens. The horses go out. There's a number of months until the day of destruction is coming. And we get this little interlude where we see a window into the change that's been going on in the empire itself. Because before, everyone seemed fine with the Jews being destroyed. Now... Now the tide is kind of turning. So here's what we see, um, verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor, and in every province and every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday and many of the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So we see a very, there's a big difference here. Um, there's a lot of, um, of shifts, right? The tables really have turned. Um, and this is no surprise. I mean, the people in the city of Susa, a couple days ago, they would have seen uh, Mordecai on the king's horse being led by Haman, who they know hated him. Then Haman was hanged in his own front yard. And then now Mordecai is elevated to Haman's position. So they're not, they're not dumb. They can tell that the king's favor has shifted. And so what we get is this reversal. Uh, for the first part of the book, Esther has hidden her identity as a Jew. Now there are Persian people who are declaring themselves to be Jewish. I don't know if they actually were, but they just wanted to be on the winning side. That, that's how much of a shift has taken place. Um, in the, after the first decree, The words describing the Jews, they had mourning, lamenting, fasting, and weeping. So they're so low. But after the second degree, it says there's light, gladness, joy, and honor. So everyone is very encouraged, but the day of destruction has not yet come. And so nine months later, the day of conflict arrives. And you can just imagine throughout the empire, especially in the capital city, just think of the tension that would be there on that day. I mean, everyone knows what's coming. Uh, schools will be canceled, probably all the shops boarded up. Everyone's just waiting to see what is going to happen when, when this day comes and you're allowed, they're allowed to engage in this conflict. And, and here's, here's what happens. I'll, I'll read to you and then we'll get into some details. Uh, Esther 9 verse 1. Now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them the reverse occurred the jews gained mastery over those who hated them so there explicitly were re- stated the reverse everyone thought the jews were going to get get destroyed in fact they were able to master those who were attacking them the jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of king hashuaris to lay hands on those who sought their harm and no one could stand against them for the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples all the officials of the provinces the satraps the governors the royal agents They helped the Jews for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. So very clearly there, uh, everything had shifted. Even the Persian officials were helping the Jewish people, giving them supplies, giving them weapons. Mordecai, the, the fame, the strength of Mordecai, he was getting more and more powerful because no one wanted to be on the wrong side of the king's man. Now, the details of the battle itself. We'll put these up so you can see the words. Verse 5. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshendatha, and Dalphon, and Aspatha, and Paratha, and Adalia, and Eridatha, and Parmashta, and Erisai, and Eridai, and Vizatha. The 10 sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. So notice here, the Jews did as they pleased. That's a signal that they had complete dominance over their attackers. Uh, They killed 500 people in the capital city itself. And notably, because they're all named, the 10 sons of Haman. Now you might wonder at this point, what does the king think about all of this? I mean, this is his, his empire. In, in a sense, there's almost a civil war going on. You would wonder, like, is he, is he regret sending that second edict out? Is this, is this what he wants? Well, in the next couple verses, what we see is that the king, he's very excited by this. He's treating it almost like we would a hockey game. He's getting a play-by-play from his servants that go out and come back and tell him what's going on. And he tells Queen Esther, this is what's going on. So here, here is the king's reaction. Verse 14, Um, Oh, sorry, verse 11. So that very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? And what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. So this is interesting. The king's asking her again, what do you want? Her response, and Esther said, if it please the king let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed also to do according to this day's edict and let the 10 sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. Now it's not clear exactly why the king asked her again. I think probably he was just really excited, right? He was jazzed about the battle and he's like, what else, what else do you want Esther? Tell me and, and it'll happen. She takes this opportunity though to ask for something interesting. She asks for an extension, She says, grant the authorization for the Jews just in the capital city to be able to continue to wage this battle tomorrow, the next day, and take the bodies of the sons of Haman and hang them up, string them up in the city. A little bit strange. We'll we'll talk about that in a moment. But I want to read the last few verses. This will finish off our text and give us the, the final stats of how this day of destruction went. Verse 14. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, The 10 sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. So those are the final totals. Uh, 75,000 Enemies, we can assume men, uh, were killed in the rest of the kingdom. In the capital city, 800 people were killed. It was a resounding victory for the Jews. The question, though, I think we might have, in light of all of this uh, bloodshed, and especially in light of Esther's request to extend the battle and to string up the bodies of the sons of Haman, uh, many commentators, a few commentators over the years have said, you know, this, this feels... Uh, This feels cruel. This feels vindictive. This feels like there's an element of bloodlust. here. like, how do we explain this? How do we reconcile this as being something good that the people of God should do? Is this not just them being cruel and violent? Well, the answer, I would argue, is no, for a couple of reasons. Um, Firstly, we need to understand um, or or see clearly that in the text, the Jews actually showed uh, restraint in this battle. Uh, it, It says there that, because of the way the parameters were given by Haman, they could have included women and children. They didn't. There's no evidence that any women or children were harmed. Also, they didn't plunder any of the goods. That was, that was part of the incentive that Haman had built in, that you could attack the Jews, take all their stuff. Uh, the second edict said the same thing, but the Jews, they didn't, they didn't touch any of, the, any of the wealth, the people that they killed. The evidence there is that they really just wanted to neutralize the threat. It was defensive. That's, that's why they took these measures. And that actually explains Esther's second request. Uh, if you think for a moment, there was nine months between when Haman died and this day of destruction. What do you think Haman's 10 sons were doing during that time? Well, no doubt they were stirring up aggression against the Jews. They were saying to their friends, their family, to anyone who would listen, look, there's a day coming, we're gonna get them back. We're gonna get Mordecai's the reason that my dad is dead. And so they get a lot of people together and they came against the Jews. Now they were killed, but clearly there there were pockets of resistance still in the capital city. And so that's why Esther made the request. We need a little bit more time to completely neutralize the threat. And probably the best way to show the other side that they had lost would be to hang up the bodies of the 10 sons of Haman to say, look, your leaders, they're they're dead. Just stand down. Um, The conflict is over. So I think that explains kind of the nature of this this conflict. It wasn't about vindictiveness. It was about uh, defending themselves and about neutralizing any of the threats. And they did. Very clearly on that day, the Jews won. God gave them victory over their enemies. There's a great celebration. In fact, next week, we're gonna finish off by looking at the celebration that was instituted by the Jews at that time and continue to this day, the Feast of Purim, really celebrating God's deliverance from their enemies. But here's the thing. What, it, what lessons are there in this text for us? For us, God's people today. I mean, what is this telling us? Is, is this telling us that we as the people of God are to take up arms against those who threaten us? Is this telling us that we are to fight against our enemies? Like what, what lesson is there for us here and now, those who seek to follow the Lord? Well, the answer is that as Christians, we are called to fight. We are called to engage in a battle, but it's not against our enemies out there in the world. It's against an even greater threat that resides in each one of us. So here's our one point of, of application and instruction for us this morning. In this text, we see that we are to wage war against sin. We are to wage war against sin. Now, to help us see the connection there of this text and this point of application, he explained a couple of things. See, one of the challenges of reading the whole, the whole Bible and seeing the story from beginning to end, is that there are some things that God calls his people to in the Old Testament that seem at odds with the teaching of Jesus in the New Testament. It seems like it's not saying the same thing. Uh, for example, here's two verses, one from the Old, one from the New. 1 Samuel 15, 18. And the Lord sent you on a mission. This is talking to the people of God. The mission that God sent them on was this. Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. It seems a lot like the, what we see in our text today. Go kill all the evildoers that want to mean you harm, destroy them completely. But then Matthew 5, says, Jesus says this. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And very often there's, I mean, there's an obvious tension there. How how do we understand? How do we reconcile the command of God to go and destroy your enemies or then to love your enemies and pray for them? Well, first thing we need to see, that's very clear in the Bible, is that God Himself does not change. His character doesn't change, his moral law does not change. It was the same in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and today. In fact, Both of these commands that we see in the Old and the New Testament, they are rooted in the same deep truth that God reveals in the Bible. And that truth is this. The primary enemy of all human beings has always been the same. It's sin. Sin is the enemy of human beings in the world. Sin is the one that is the greatest threat. Sin brings death and sorrow wherever it takes hold. Sin destroys life. Destroys our our joy and our peace. Sin separates us from God. Sin sows seeds of discontentment that leads us to abandon our faith. In essence, sin is basically turning our back on God, going in the other direction, and then destruction, eternal destruction is our fate. And so because God loves his people, what we see is that he always acts to protect us from sin and to save us from sin. In the Old Testament, the threat of sin manifested itself in a a particular way because in the Old Testament, there were certain people groups that had completely embraced sin. I mean, they had completely turned their backs on God. They were corrupt and wicked and evil. They wanted nothing to do with the God of the universe, the God who created them. Here we can think of the city of Sodom that God went to to look for anyone who was righteous, didn't find anyone. You can look to the Canaanites or the, the Amalekites See, the greatest threat that these people posed to the people of God wasn't just that they might conquer them or steal their land or plunder their goods or even kill them. The greatest threat that these other people, these enemy people had for the people of God is that that they might corrupt their hearts, that that they would lead them into sinful, idolatrous practices, that because the people of God were connected with these, these other sinful people, that they themselves would abandon their faith. See, plundering of goods and death was bad, but sin, sin meant eternal consequences. That's why we see certain commands of God in the Old Testament. For example, God said to his people, look, don't marry the other people out there in the world. Don't intermarry. That wasn't an issue of race. It was an issue of wanting to guard his people from the influence of sin. God knew if you're gonna marry someone, it's very difficult to resist the influence of your spouse. If they're into idolatry, worshiping other gods, that's going to that's gonna water down your own faith. Same is true today. Why it says to Christians, don't marry someone who's not a Christian because that lack of faith is going to rub off. It's going to be hard to maintain your own faith. God says to his people when they came out of Egypt, like, leave all of your idols behind. Don't bring them with you. Even if they're made of solid gold, even if they're valuable, it's not worth it. Because if you have an idol in your home, you're gonna be tempted to worship it when you think I disappoint you. You wanna get rid of it. And that's why God commanded his people to destroy everything and everyone when they engaged in certain battles because the threat of sin persisted if the things of sin were allowed to survive. And that's why even, see, there were even times when God commanded his people to turn their swords on their own brothers. Because that the threat of sin was within God's people. It wasn't just outside, it was also within. So last week, if you remember, we talked about the incident of the golden calf. After the Exodus story, uh, Moses was up a mountain with God and his, the, God's people were down and they were getting impatient and so they made an idol out of gold. They started to worship it. Heinous sin, part of the consequences for that was that Moses called uh, the Levites and said, go through the camp of God's people, take your swords out and hack down all the people who were involved in this sin. 3,000 of God's own people died that day. The point being, twofold. One, there are deadly consequences for sin. But secondly, because God loves his people, he intends for us to make war against the sin in our lives. And that has not changed even to this day, sin is our greatest enemy and we are called to make war on it. The, the, difference, the difference is where the battle takes place. In the Old Testament, it was largely out there, like battling against an, another people. Now it, it's inside us. And the reason for that is because God's people are no longer just identified as one particular cultural ethnic group. I mean, it's not just the Jews who are God's people. It's, it's all kinds of people all over the world. Jew, Gentile, Greek, anyone who claims the name of Jesus is, is a follower of God. And so it's not just one group of people. Also, sin is not just identified with one group of people. Out there. So you can't just draw battle lines in terms of nationalities. The battle lines need to be drawn in our own heart. We're all sinners. We, we all need redemption. We all need forgiveness. We all need to wage war on the threat that is within us. In fact, uh, this this violent, warlike language we find it still in the New Testament. It's just that the object, the focus, is different. Let me let me give you a couple of examples here. Here's a Matthew five twenty nine to thirty. This is Jesus speaking about to to believers. He says, "If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell." And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now Jesus there doesn't actually mean necessarily you have to cut off your hand or tear out your eye. He's saying that's your, that should be your attitude toward the things in your life that are leading you into sin. Whatever it is, it's better to, to be without an electronic device if it's gonna lead you into sin. It's better to, to quit that job if it's gonna lead you into sin. It's, the key thing is that we are following the Lord, that we identify the sin in life and we wage war against it. It's very aggressive language. Here's another example. Colossians 3, 5 and 6. It says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. You see the language there. Put it to death, fight it, kill it. Kill what is earthly in you. See, the final sequence in Esther, it serves as a vivid picture of, of this very dynamic that is going on in our own lives. It shows us the menace of evil and sin in our lives and the importance of making war on it, which is helpful because a lot of the time we don't see the threat of sin for what it is. I and mean, Think of the things mentioned in that verse in Colossians. One of them was uh, covetousness, coveting. Coveting is just wanting things that you don't have. Which I would say is kind of woven into the fabric of our culture. I mean, we're always wanting things that we don't have. We spend a lot of our time scrolling past pictures of things that we don't have. And we don't think much of it. We, we, we take it very lightly. We think to ourselves, I'm just, I'm just getting ideas. I'm just looking at new fashion trends. I'm just whatever I'm doing. We don't realize that very easily what can happen is that can sow seeds of discontentment. When we begin to believe, we don't have all that we need. When we think to ourselves, God actually is not caring for us the way that he promised to. See, these kinds of thoughts, when we take them lightly, we we don't see clearly the threat that they pose in our lives. Because here's the truth. The truth is that hell is not a place that people are dragged off to against their will. Hell is a place that we We end up there because we gladly follow a path paved with, with sinful, unassuming thoughts that lead us to believe and have a conviction that we don't really need God, that there are other things in the world that are going to bring bring us greater joy. We end up abandoning our our faith because we entertain these other thoughts and we we willingly walk down this path. See, if we believe there is a hell, then we we cannot take the threat of sin lightly just like the Jews in Persia. They did not take lightly the threats that were made against them. Once that second edict was, was posted, they started to get themselves ready. They, they, they got their weaponry, they, they started training, whatever they did, they, had, they know they had nine months and they had to get ready because the threat was coming. They, they wanted to make sure that when the moment came, they were able to completely neutralize the threat against them. They knew there was a battle to be fought and they prepared themselves for it and they fought it to the death. We have that same battle to wage. It's simply that we are to wage war against the sin within us. The very thing that poses the greatest threat for us. The question, of course, is how? How do we do this? This is the question I wanna ask. Spend, Spend the last bit of our time. How do we wage war against the sin in our lives? And in our hearts. How do we do that? How do we effectively put sin to death? Well, two answers. Two answers are gonna be helpful for us, both found in scripture. Here's the first one. We wage war against sin by the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I get this from Romans 8, 13. Here's the verse. It says, for if you live according to the flesh, that is sin, you will die. That's what we've been saying. Right? That's the threat of sin in our lives. If you live according to the flesh, according to sin, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, putting to death the deeds of the body, that's what we saw in Colossians 3, right? That's the battle. We've got to put to death the deeds of the body, fight against the, the, the parts of us that are following sin. But notice the added part there that was key is by the Spirit. That's the difference by the Spirit. See, there, there are a lot of people in our world that are putting to death the deeds of the body, but they're doing it in their own strength for their own earthly reasons. I mean, just think about the, the self-help section in the bookstore. That's all about usually putting to death the deeds of the body, saying those things are not good for you. These things are good for you. So turn away from that, do this, and you'll feel better. Um, this is every diet, every fitness craze, every, uh, thing that you're trying to do out of your own willpower. I mean, when I open up Firefox, in my computer, there's all these articles and most of them are this kind of a thing, uh, like eight ways to stop procrastinating, five reasons to eat more kale, uh, how to eat less sugar. There's all these things, these articles, and they're there because they're, they're helpful. I guess I, I probably should do those last two things for sure. But, but here's the thing. That will not, that's a different, there's a difference between just putting to death the deeds of the body, just kind of trying to, in your own strength, make things better than actually accessing the power of the Holy Spirit. See, when we add in putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit of God, that means that we're doing it in such a way that the nature and the power of the Spirit is unleashed in our life which is different because then we're not just working on the outside of us, our actions, our behavior, we're working on the heart. We're still working, it's still our effort, but it's God's strength and God's power. This is the the normal dynamic of the Christian life. We are striving to pursue God, striving to, to turn away from sin, to walk more and more towards Jesus, but we do it, we're working at it, but we realize that it's really the power of God, the power of the Spirit, that is convicting us of sin, helping us to see the truth and really turning and going in the right direction. So if we're gonna be successful in our war against sin in our lives, we need to do it by the power of the spirit. Next question, how do we get that power? How do we gain access to the power of the spirit of God in a consistent and effective way? Here's the second part of our answer. We wage war against sin by the Holy Spirit and secondly, by hearing the word and believing by hearing the word and believing. I get this from uh, Galatians 3 5, and this is Paul uh, talking about God who supplies the Spirit. And he says, Look, there's, there's two ways that we can be supplied the Spirit, that we can have access to the, the power of the Spirit. The first one is wrong, the second one is right. He gives us both. Uh, here's, here's how it reads Galatians 3 5. It says, does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you, that's the power of the spirit, does he do so by works of the law? Wrong, no. Or by hearing with faith? Yes. Yes, hearing with faith is what does it. But the first one, why is that wrong? Why why is that not the way to access the power of the spirit through works of the law? Well, because works of the law is is in our power. That's like us just saying, well, here's the 10 commandments, man, I'm going to do that. I'm going to each day make sure that I do exactly what is right, follow all of God's rules. I'm just going to muscle it out, white knuckle it out, do my best to be the best person I can be. The end result is always the same. We, we can't do it. It's not in our nature on our own to be able to achieve that level of righteousness, to actually follow all the rules. So we, we don't actually make it. Plus our, our power is, is so limited to actually gain that kind of life transformation. So works of the law, the law was never given to us to save us. The law was given so that we might see our sin more clearly. But the other option brings power. Paul says, or by hearing with faith. Hearing with faith. The faith part seems obvious, but, but why did Paul add hearing? Well, it's because hearing is always how we access the power of God. Think about what Jesus says when he's teaching, when he was on earth. He says over and over again to people, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. What he means by that is not just like, are you hearing my voice? But what he's really saying is, are you really, are you really hearing it with your heart? Are you allowing my words to transform your heart? If so, then you will have access to the kingdom of God. Think about, for those of you who have faith, if you're watching, you're a Christian, how did, how did you come to faith? You came to faith by hearing and believing. Someone told you, look, the Bible says that you're a sinner. You heard and you believed. Maybe, maybe all of a sudden, in a moment, I, I am. Someone told you, look, Jesus, he came and he lived a perfect life, the life you couldn't live. You heard and you believed. Someone said, look, Jesus went to the cross, died on the cross for your sins. He atoned for your sin. You heard that and you believed. And they said, Jesus, he didn't stay dead. He was resurrected to new life. We heard and we believed. We confessed our sin. And the power of God was unleashed in us, transformed our hearts so that we would have faith. It was God's power the whole time working in us. And it happened because we heard the word of God and we believed. Jesus claimed victory over sin already on the cross. We heard that, we believed, we now have salvation. Praise God. But there's more to come. Because the hearing and believing doesn't just lead to salvation. It's also how we grow in sanctification. It's how we kill the residual sin that is in our lives. It's how we grow in maturity in Christ's likeness and actually live out our faith, work out our salvation. John Piper is a pastor and teacher. We talk about him a lot. I'm indebted to him for this, this section of the sermon. But one example he gives, which is so clear, Is this? He says, look, what this is, this is like a plug and an outlet. He said, we are the plug. The word of God is the outlet. If you want the power of God, you got to plug it in. There's no power in any electrical system unless you, you plug it in. You need to be connected into the word of God because the word of God brings the truths of God. It brings the clarity about who we are, about who God is. It cuts through all the lies of sin that threaten to, to confuse us and to lead us down a path towards our destruction. For us to gain mastery over the sin in our lives, we need to be daily hearing the word of God and believing it true and then living out of its truths. That's how we wage war each and every day. Let me close with an example because this is out there. These are, these are things that we can see hopefully in scripture. We can see what you're doing, but But again, the question is, okay, well, what does it actually look like to live this out? Here's an example. This example is uh, from my wife Dawn's life. I asked her if we could share this. She said, absolutely. Uh, When Dawn was was younger, like in her later teens and early 20s, uh, she struggled a lot with anxiety. And it was anxiety that had to do with her physical health. She she thought a lot about, about what would happen if she got sick and if she would die. And so anything that you know, would feel wrong in her body, would bring about a lot of anxiety, a lot of worry. And the reason for that, one of the reasons, main reason, was that in her late teens, like in grade 11, 12, and then after uh, high school, uh, she had a number of people that she knew who died unexpectedly. Young people. Uh, She had about nine people uh, that were somewhat close to her that, that died over the time period, about two years. So these were people in her family, people in her class at school, people from the gymnastics club that she was a part of. Um, and, and they died in a variety of ways. Car accidents, um, health concerns, just unexpectedly, people, people dying. And it, and it just shook her. And she began to wonder, like, am, am I next? If all of these people that I know, these young people could die, am, am I going to be next? And so she really struggled with worry and anxiety. Um, when we Started dating and went into marriage. This was, this was something that, that I noticed, that we talked about. And this was something that, you know, if you struggle with anxiety, isn't just, um, isn't just a concern, isn't just something that is bothersome. As Christians, what we need to recognize is, is it's actually wrong thinking. That there's an element of sin and anxiety because what we're really saying is, look, God, I don't trust you with these things. And, and I'm worried. I feel like I have to do the worry and try to fix things because I don't think you're going to take care of it. So the answer to Dawn's anxiety, one of the main ones, was for her to immerse herself, her mind and her heart, in the Word of God. And I remember doing this with her, um, writing down verses, putting them around the house, talking about them, praying through them. Because in the Word, we have answers. We have truths that bring comfort and bring correction to our, to our sinful thoughts. So for example, classic anxiety text, Philippians 4, 4-7. to Here it is. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's the truth of God about the things we worry about. Don would read that and then pray through it. She, she would pray like, Lord, I believe this. I've heard it. I believe it, but I don't, I don't feel it. That's the struggle. Lord, Lord Jesus, would you help me to actually believe this, to actually um, l- live it out, to feel it? And then what she would do is she would look for those thoughts which were, were not true, which went against this. Thoughts like you're gonna get sick. Thoughts like that pain, that, that discomfort, that, that something serious, you're, that you're gonna die. And she would counteract them with the truths of of God, which is, look, there is a peace from God that surpasses all understanding, that God is at hand, that he is gonna take care of you. And she was able to to speak into those, those lies and say, look, maybe I am sick, but I have a hope that goes beyond this life. I have a father who cares for me. I have a God who sent his own son to die for me. And all of these truths were able to wage war against the lies of sin and the enemy that wanted to bring greater anxiety, greater worry, and greater sin into her life. She heard and she believed. And the power of God slowly brought greater peace as was promised into her life. We all struggle with things. We struggle with anxiety, We struggle with all manner of sin. Do you see that this works with absolutely everything in our life? Anything right now that you are struggling with, that God has given us answers in the text of scripture. Truths that can counteract the thoughts and the practices, the things that are drawing us away from him that are undermining our peace and our joy. This is the life that we are called to live. This is the battle that we are called to fight in the Christian life. The question really for us is, Are we fighting this battle? Is this even a war that you see as necessary to fight? John Owen's got a famous saying. He just says, look, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Think of the Jews in Persia at the time. They knew that if they weren't ready for this battle, that the enemies out there, they were going to kill them. They had to be neutralized. They had to be killed or they were going to be dead. That should be our mindset with sin. We need to see it for the enemy that it is and we need to actively engage with the weapon that God has given us, which is the word of God to bring truth and clarity to all the the layers of our life so that we would be free from sin, so that we would actually have the peace that is promised to us. See, the Jews in Persia, they readied themselves for battle. Are, Are you ready? Are you in the word? Are you a taking the word of God are you making lists and saying man these things are plaguing me are these even true no here it is from the word of God this is what I'm gonna focus on this is the answer that I need this doesn't happen in a moment in a week or a month this takes time but the battle is worth fighting because here's the thing Jesus has already won this war do we realize that his victory on the cross means that he has gained victory over sin the greatest enemy has been defeated but but for us to experience it We need to live it out applying those truths fighting hard not in our strength but in his strength so that we might enjoy Jesus more and so that we might glorify him with our entire lives so that's what I'm going to pray for for us as a church that we'd be actively looking for those areas of sin waging war on them by the power of the spirit through the word of God by hearing and believing and that through that we'd be able to honor God all the more in our lives and live for him let me pray Lord Jesus, I am thankful for your victory on the cross. I'm thankful, Lord Jesus, that we don't have to win this battle, that it has been won. But God, you do call us to fight it through the word, through the power of the spirit. And so I pray, Lord Jesus, that everyone listening and watching, Lord, that you would help us to do that. Help us to be faithful in this battle. Help us not to shrink back. Help us not to take sin lightly, God. May we see that you want the very best for us and so you call us into this battle and you give us what we need. You equip us with the word so that we might combat the lies of sin with the truth of the gospel and that we might be freed, freed from sin. I pray, Lord, for those who've been struggling for a while. Lord, some of these battles take so long. God, help us to persevere. Help us not to doubt the truths of the Bible. And help us, Lord Jesus, to have the pictures that we see in the Bible of your sovereign deliverance and care like you cared for your people back there in Persia at that time. You care the same for us and you've given us what we need. Help us, Lord God, to be faithful. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.